Welcome to On the Middle East, our monitor's weekly podcast on the big issues of the day unfolding in the region. My name is Amran Zaman, and I'm a Rovian correspondent for Al Monitor, who reports from the Middle East. For those of you familiar with our podcast, our usual host is Al Monitor President Andrew Parasliti. But from today onwards, I'll be stealing the show from him every so often um, to give voice to as many as I can of the amazing women who live in and are from the Middle East and to get their perspective on what's happening and why. Uh, My first guest is a truly extraordinary young woman. Uh, She's called Elizabeth Tsurkov. She's an Israeli-Russian scholar who's a doctoral student at Princeton University, and she lives in Istanbul. Her focus is on the Levant, and particularly, though, on the horribly sad and violent uh, Syrian conflict. Elizabeth is currently a fellow at the Center for Global Policy, that's a think tank based in Washington. She's also a research fellow at the Forum for Regional Thinking, uh, which is an Israeli-Palestinian think tank based in Jerusalem. So I'm super excited about this conversation because Elizabeth is truly an expert on Syria, who has been to Syria numerous times and has one of the broadest networks ever. Uh, comprising of Syrian politicians, activists, artists, rebels, and ordinary people, of course. Well, also some pretty scary characters too, I imagine, actually. She speaks fluent Arabic and obviously Russian and Hebrew, and as such brings a truly unique perspective. She approaches the subject not only with her planet-sized brain, but her enormous heart. Elizabeth cares And this shines through her body of work. In fact, Elizabeth contracted COVID as a result of embracing her Syrian friends in Istanbul, like, I mean, literally from embracing them, hugging them. Welcome to our show, Elizabeth, and thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for that uh, kind uh, introduction. I'm very happy to be with you on this uh, first episode that you're uh, kind of taking over the race. Great. Well, listen, so when we talk about Syria, it seems very hard to actually give a full picture of the place because it's effectively split into three separate zones of influence, right? There's the regime and it's Russian and Iranian allies who now control the majority of the country. Then you have the Turks and their Sunni rebel proxies in the north and the US and the Kurds in the northeast plus all these gray zones where the different stakeholders overlap and occasionally clash. The conflict seems pretty much frozen now, except for the constant threat of a fresh regime offensive against Idlib, the rebel-held province bordering Turkey. Let me start by asking you how these three different zones sort of interact. And, you know, can Humpty Dumpty be put back together again? You know, can, can Syria become whole again or is it a failed state? And we can then zoom into Idlib, which is of course your area of expertise, and then talk about the possible changes that the Biden administration might bring. So over to you, Elizabeth. Uh, sure thing. So um, yes, as you mentioned, um, Syria is divided into three, or we can say four, uh, main areas. Um, The areas 
uh, under regime control are indeed where the majority of the population lives and also it's the majority of territory that is under the control of the regime. It's almost 70% and it includes almost all uh, major cities in the country, including, of course, Damascus, the capital, as well as Homs, Hama, uh, the south, uh, and the coastal area, Susan, Latie. Um, the uh, country as a whole is experiencing an unprecedented economic crisis and um, a food insecurity. Um, according to UN estimates now, about half of Syrians are food insecure. That means that they don't know how they'll be able to secure their next meal. Um, and the crisis is particularly felt in regime-held areas. Um, this crisis uh, exacerbated significantly in 2020, uh, in large part due to the uh, collapse of the uh, banking sector in uh, Lebanon, which is tied um, uh, very tightly to the uh, Syrian economy and the Syrian banking sector. Um, and uh, once the Lebanese um, uh, currency uh, collapsed, so did the uh, Syrian one. So basically, salaries of state employees are now worth around $20. It is completely impossible to survive on this salary. And uh, of course, the areas under regime control are living under uh, you know, a highly aggressive police state that arrests people on a daily basis, that surveils the population through a huge network of informers. Um, this is what um, life in uh, regime held areas looks like. Um, in the uh, Northeast, um, we have the areas under the control of the Syrian Democratic Forces, uh, who are U.S. allies. Um, these uh, areas are rich with both oil and uh, grain. And um, because the SDF is able to sell its oil to finance its budget, the economic situation there is uh, somewhat better. Uh, salaries that are given to uh, fighters in the Syrian Democratic Forces are significantly higher than uh, salaries of pretty much any other fighter uh, inside the country. Um, and um, while the, uh, much of the area was previously under ISIS rule, uh, it basically we're slowly seeing uh, reconstruction uh, happening, particularly in Raqqa, which was once kind of the uh, unofficial capital of ISIS in Syria. Um, but we are con uh, continuing to see persistent uh, ISIS attacks, particularly in Deir uh, uh, in the rural areas. Uh, of that province that are under uh, SDF control. And then we have the Northwest. And the Northwest could be uh, roughly divided between Idlib, uh, is home to about 3 million people. And that area is under the control of Hayat Tahrir Sham, HTS, which is a former affiliate of Al Qaeda. Um, the humanitarian uh, conditions in this area are the worst in Syria on all metrics, pretty much, in terms of uh, COVID, in terms of uh, um, malnutrition of children, malnutrition of, uh, of breastfeeding mothers. Um, over one million of the area's inhabitants, so more than a third, are living in tent camps. Uh, basically, Idlib is kind of the major stronghold of the opposition. Uh, to this area, the regime bust people who refuse to live under its control. So the population there is uh, very antagonistic towards the regime and terrified of the prospect of 
a regime, uh, further regime advances on this area. Um, but uh, thankfully, since uh, March, uh, the area has not witnessed new regime offenses. Um, and, and this means basically that the area is witnessing the greatest stability. However, it is still basically uh, a continuous humanitarian crisis because of all this displacement and massive destruction. Uh, Russia and the regime and uh, pro-Iranian militias destroyed much of the area's infrastructure. So the population is basically depending on aid and going hungry. And then uh, we have the areas uh, that are in northern Aleppo and also an area known as the uh, Peace Spring uh, Operation Area that is under control of uh, Turkish proxies. These are um, militias that uh, present themselves as revolutionary actors, as rebels. Uh, in reality, they uh, take orders from uh, Turkish authorities. Um, and basically, Turkey uses them to wage battle uh, mostly against the SDF or, uh, you know, the Kurdish component of the SDF, the, the Uh Those areas are home to less than 2 million people. Uh, those areas experience high levels of insecurity and criminality and lawlessness uh, due to the abuses of these factions, as well as uh, insurgency by the PKK, the YPG, um the, which continues to uh, deploy car bombs into these areas. Uh, and these car bombs enter very easily because of the corruption of the uh, uh, Syrian proxies of Turkey, who just uh, in exchange for bribes allow these car bombs to come in. So those areas, uh, that area also um, has a large number of uh, displaced people from other parts of Syria. and. Uh, Part of that the territory is also Afrin, which was once a Kurdish majority area and basically underwent ethnic cleansing. And uh, now uh, Arabs who have been displaced from uh, other parts of Syria are now living uh, in Kurdish homes. Let's zoom into Id Idlib a bit and this uh, group, Hayat Tahrir al-Sham. Do you believe that, um, first of all, that the approach of the incoming Biden administration will be uh, more sort of closer to how the Russians view things in Idlib? Will uh, the Biden administration be more sympathetic to the Russians on that score? And by, the, by extension, you know, less supportive of Turkey's, um, you know, um, Turkey's resistance to any Russian offensives there? Um, or do you think they might be swayed by what appears to be an effort, certainly on the part of uh, the HTS leader, Jolani, to sort of moderate himself, distance himself from Al-Qaeda? And, and does he actually have real legitimacy? Can you tell us a bit about that, Elizabeth? Sure. So um, HTS uh, underwent a very interesting uh, process uh, in, uh, in recent years. Um, initially, when um, the, the previous iteration of the group, Rajab Nusra, broke ties with Al-Qaeda Central, uh, many people, myself included, believe that this is basically a propaganda ploy um, and that no change will occur uh, with the group's uh, conduct. Um, but we've actually seen changes both on the ground in terms of policies of this group, uh, as well as the rhetoric. Um, I, I think uh, for the international community, much more important is what's happening on the ground rather than rhetoric. Uh, and basically what we're seeing 
is uh, the Tayyip Tahrir Sham wants to present itself to the international community as uh, a responsible actor, uh, an actor with whom it is worth engaging uh, politically. Um, and to prove that, they have both abided by ceasefires with the regime, whereas previously they would constantly violate them and would criticize groups that abided by ceasefires. But probably even more importantly uh, for the West um, and Turkey is their uh, very uh, intense campaign against both ISIS networks that, um, or sleep sleeper cells that operate in the area. Uh, these operations happen uh, on a monthly basis. Um, they, uh, the ISIS cells are caught, and their members are executed. Uh, the, the, the fighting against ISIS by HDF uh, is, is ferocious. Uh, I would even go as far as to say that Idlib is the region least hospitable to ISIS uh, compared to uh, the areas under Turkish control or uh, regime areas or uh, SDF areas where there's uh, uh, much, much greater presence uh, of, uh, of ISIS. Let me just jump in with a quick question then. How is it, how is it that uh, al-Baghdadi managed to, you know, find sanctuary in that region. Isn't that where he was caught? Right. Uh, so he was caught in Idlib, and it was actually extremely surprising uh, to many analysts, myself included, that he was there um, because, uh, because of this hostility. And, you know, the reality at the end of the day is that um, Idlib is a highly dense uh, area where most of the population is not originally from the area because of these waves of displacement due to regime attacks. So when a foreigner is present in the area and has a lot of money to buy himself protection, to buy himself this villa in the middle of uh, you know, a, a relatively quiet area close to the Turkish border, um, it, is, um, it is very hard to, uh, to track him down. Um, but at the same time, just uh, two days ago, Haid uh, Hersham carried a raid against uh, ISIS cells in Kafr Tahrim, also on the border with, uh, with Turkey. So uh, their efforts to combat ISIS are ongoing. And of course, this stems from a desire to please the international community, but also from their own self-interest, right? They don't want to have competing centers of power. And ISIS also targets uh, HDF. So they, they're obviously they're at, at war with them. Well, but also more, more, more recently, in 2020, um, HDS also started uh, targeting in a sustained manner uh, the Al-Qaeda uh, affiliate. Um, basically, it's a group uh, called Farah Guardians of the Religion, that split off from HDS. They're more hardline. And, and basically, in 2020, HDS started cracking down on them. They confiscated all their heavy weaponry, their tanks. They kicked them away from the front line so that they are not able to violate ceasefires. So essentially, we have an actor that is, uh, for its own uh, survival and pragmatic reasons, is uh, changing its behavior. And uh, definitely, there was a recognition of this fact uh, with uh, Jeffrey's team and Jeffrey personally. Um, I, I think we need to wait and see what's going to be the approach uh, of the Biden administration. Uh, you know, McGurka is not going to be the, the sole person uh, um, making decisions about Syria. There's also the State Department. There are also people who, I mean, McGurk will likely focus more, for example, on the Iran file, which matters 
uh, more to, to the Biden administration uh, and thus uh, uh, leaving others uh, with the opportunity to, to influence policy. But I think that um, the Biden administration too uh, wishes to avoid the humanitarian catastrophe that would occur Sorry. if the regime in Russia were to resume an attack on Idlib and we would see again, uh, you know, a million fleeing towards the border with fears by European countries that these people will cross over and then somehow make their way to Europe. So this raises an interesting question. So um, let's assume that, you know, um, HTS seems, you know, less threatening and more of a useful partner because, you know, they're fighting the same enemy, the Islamic State. Uh, um, you know, we recently heard a senior Syrian Kurdish official, Ilham Ahmed, float the idea of some kind of cooperation, didn't she? You, in fact, tweeted about that. Remind me again what, what, what it was she said about cooperating with the Northwest, with... Right, so she, she was saying that um, they are interested in creating, uh, 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 in, in turning the Northeast into uh, a space of um, shared, uh, kind of a shared project for the opposition and for the SDF. The wording is not particularly clear, but it follows um, very explicit statements that she made publicly in, in Kamishlo about two months ago, um, where she spoke about uh, basically willingness to engage uh, with the Syrian opposition. Uh, she said, you know, we are willing to talk with people who are not receiving, uh, you know, orders from foreign countries. So that, you know, may rule, out, it will rule out uh, certain actors in the opposition, which are essentially, you know, uh, carrying out Turkish orders, but there are elements within the opposition uh, who could, are could learning. Could HDS tendency. be one of them, you think? Um, so HDS is definitely much more independent. They're not, I wouldn't describe them as Turkish proxies. Their relationship with Turkey is quite complex. The relationship is, is, is hardly one of, you know, HDS simply carrying out Turkish orders. Uh, I think that um, in this regard, probably the apprehension would be more from the SDF side. You know, they are, uh, the SDF uh, enjoys international legitimacy, popularity, um, so much of the media coverage of the SDF focuses on the heroism of fighting against ISIS, the beautiful female fighters, etc. And to then um, have them in some way associated with HDS, which as you say, is a designated terrorist group uh, by the UN, by the US, by Turkey, etc. It's something that may not serve their interest, but it does open the possibility for engagement with opposition actors um, who are not based in Turkey or not uh, subservient to Turkey. Um, well, it's an interesting also, idea because, I mean, if you think about it, if they were to, you know, join hands in some fashion, that would really create a lot of pressure, wouldn't it, on the regime? Yes, so so this is something that uh, members of the of the of the Syrian opposition and even um, Jeffrey's team, you know, their kind of thinking is was to try and heal the rifts between the Syrian opposition and the SDF. Rifts that by large, you know, stem from uh, Turkey's policies towards the SDF, and really kind of create. Um, 
you know, basically, as you, as you said uh, at the beginning, Syria is kind of partitioned and the, and the, and the conflict is turning into a frozen conflict. So uh, wouldn't it be uh, kind of revolutionary and uh, offer, uh, you know, a real kind of leverage versus the regime if the areas outside of regime control, which are over 30% of Syria's um, territory, uh, and where, you know, over... Uh, seven, eight million people live in those territories, wouldn't it be, um, uh, wouldn't it really kind of pressure the regime if those areas uh, had better, uh, you know, trade relations, coordination, uh, et cetera, and really kind of created an area that flourishes, that has some uh, kind of uh, um, political pluralism, uh, and, and thus would serve as an example uh, for Syrians who continue to live under regime rule and for the international community to see what a Syria without Assad uh, would look like. For as long as Assad's at the helm, it's inconceivable, right, that the United States uh, would, you know, allow any money to come in, certainly not from the West, right? Um, they would yeah, attack uh, anyone who did that. So how were they going to rebuild this war-shattered country. I mean, it's a carcass. What, 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 what's, you know, it goes back to my initial question. How do you put Humpty Dumpty back together again? And, 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 and where do these presidential elections fit into all of this? So the presidential elections fit into this because um, it seems that Russia's, Russia attempted to pressure the regime to engage, for example, with the Constitutional Committee uh, process, it tried to uh, pressure the regime, for example, uh, you know, to host this um, ridiculous conference on refugee returns in Damascus. Um, it, it tried to get the regime to try and present itself in a, a kind of a more accommodating um, uh, face, and, and the regime stubbornly refused to do so. So now it seems that Russia is shifting to trying to give legitimacy to the sham elections that will be held uh, this year for the presidency. Um, there, are, there are going to be uh, candidates who will face off against Assad, and probably the election is not going to be kind of the classic uh, Syrian election of 99.8, uh, you know, voting for, for, the, for the Assad, whether it's Hafez or Bashar. Uh, they'll probably, you know, pick some other number that makes it sound more plausible, but of course will be ridiculous. Um, and the, the country essentially, um, right now, uh, as we said, kind of the situation is a, is a frozen conflict. And even more so, there are deep divides within Syrian society. So even if the country is somehow unified under one rule, and I, I would, you know, the most likely such force would be the regime if it, you know, we took Idlib, uh, you know, massacred the, 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 you know, a large share of the population that is there. If the U.S., for example, were to pull out of, out of the Northeast, the regime would be able to take over uh, those um, areas as well and jail opponents and, 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 and kill opponents. Um, and um, in such a prospect, you would basically have a situation that is similar to what we have in regime-held areas right now. Uh, as you said, a carcass, a, a country that is destroyed, a failed state, full-blown failed state that cannot even provide enough subsidized bread for the population, cannot provide uh, fuel, electricity, water, the most basic of services where COVID is 
is rampant and the regime is pretending that it's, you know, there's no major outbreak. Um, th this is what uh, Syria has become after 10 years of war. And um, I really don't see the country being uh, put back together and, and the uh, social rifts that this uh, war, uh, you know, amplified and created uh, are not going to heal uh, for, for generations. Um, so no. I'm afraid that I don't have anything uh, optimistic to say uh, in this regard. With regards to um, you know reconstruction money, yes, any uh, leader who is interested in um, you know his citizens doing well would want to reconstruct the country. And I'm sure that Assad, if he uh, was offered you know billions of dollars from Russia and Iran or China, he would accept that. Um, but those countries are not uh, in a position to finance it and are not interested in just donating money. Uh, the, the Caesar Act will essentially prevent any uh, kind of law-abiding country or companies from in, uh, becoming involved in reconstruction in Syria. But even without U.S. sanctions, because the country is broke, because the population is broke, there are, no, there are not that many opportunities to turn a profit in the reconstruction. The, the, the population cannot afford bread. How will they afford to rebuild their homes? So, um, and, and, for, and uh, for Assad, it is much better to rule over a carcass, as you said, a pile of ashes, rather than give in to any political dem demands that are made by the West, make any concession, even the smallest one, and secure billions of dollars from the Gulf, from the West, et cetera, for reconstruction. He would prefer to rule over a completely destroyed country than cede any power. And, and this is why Syria is really heading into this kind of a prolonged state of, of, a, of a, failed, uh, a failed state. I have one last question for you, uh, Liz. Um, you know, you interact with all these Syrian people and certainly some very religiously conservative people and, um, you know, this is the Middle East, you know, uh, and if you're Israeli, people automatically assume you're probably a spy, for one. So here you are, this Russian-Israeli um, lady who is also um, gay and, and, and openly so. How does that work? You know, how, how, you know, how do people react to you and how did you manage to build this amazing network? And, and, and it's really... You know, you've made so many friends. It's not just contacts. You've made tons yeah. of friends. Yeah, absolutely. Um, definitely, um, most of my friends are Syrian, and I feel incredibly lucky to have uh, gotten the chance to to know such remarkable uh, individuals. Um, you know, me being Israeli is definitely an issue that comes up. Uh, oftentimes, yes, uh, people suspect that I'm a spy. Uh -huh. um, I, send them my, I send them my articles, uh, I, um, I, um, uh, my position on the Palestinian issue, for example, is, is, is well known. I am uh, not a supporter of the Israeli government. By Israeli standards, I'm on the far, far left. Um, and um, I think that uh, definitely helps in, uh, you know, discouraging people from continuing to think that I'm a Mossad agent. With regards to, uh, you know, me being a woman and, and, and gay, uh, 
of course, I've, I've, I've faced issues with, um, um, with on both accounts in terms of harassment or just um, disrespectful uh, treatment. Um, but you know, my uh, sexuality is known to uh, all my close Syrian friends. But, you know, people I just uh, interview or touch base with from time to time. Uh, they don't know about it, and um, and this is because uh, reactions sometimes are not uh, are not uh, positive, and and sometimes just um, it's not that people are hateful; it's just that they start asking very inappropriate questions. Well, that um, could happen anywhere, though, right? Anywhere in the world. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely could. Um, so um, uh, overall, uh, I would say that. Uh, Syrians, particularly ones who know me well, uh, know that I care a great deal about uh, about them. They, I talk to people who are, you know, uh, supporters of the regime or you know, fearful of the opposition. I talk to people who are with the opposition and rebels and mercenaries and um, people, uh, you know, are supporters of the SDF. And I think what drives um, all of them at the end of the day to speak to me is really feeling that um, I care about them and that I want to properly reflect their perspective and their views and 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 their understanding of reality and and the reasons that they uh, adopt certain positions or take certain types of actions uh, that I seek to explain that uh, to to the outside world based on their own words based on their own uh, narrative. Well, you do an amazing job with that, Elizabeth, and please keep keep doing it because you're just such an invaluable source for all of us, a source of inspiration, information, um, all sorts of good things. So, gosh, I mean, I could go on forever, but I'm not allowed to. So, listen, thank you ever so much and hope you fully recover from that awful COVID. And uh, thank you again for being our guest today. Thank you. It was really my pleasure. I'm Ben Kaspit, Al Monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I'm glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders, and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel Al Monitor. So this brings us to the end of On the Middle East this week, and um, I hope I'll be appearing on the show again with another woman guest sometime in the near future. Uh, but Andrew's up next, Andrew Parasoliti. Thank you for tuning in, and uh, goodbye. Goodbye.